The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. We are live from Edinburgh in Scotland and Buckingham Palace here in London as the UK continues to mourn Queen Elizabeth II. Here are your headlines. Queen Elizabeth's coffin lies in rest in Edinburgh after a six-hour journey from Balmoral with her funeral set to take place on Monday, September the 19th. King Charles III formally proclaimed as sovereign as the new monarch starts a tour around the UK and Scotland for a service to mark the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. Ukrainian forces reclaim large stretches of territory in the northeast of the country as Russia makes a hasty retreat uh, but does launch a barrage of missiles into Kharkiv. And after last week's big rally towards the end of the week, Crude price is now slipping again amid warnings China's fuel demands could contract for the first time since 2002. This as Beijing continues to impose a zero policy approach to COVID cases. So crowds lined the streets as the Queen's coffin made its journey from Balmoral to the Palace of Holyrood House in Holyrood House in Edinburgh, where it rested overnight and will remain today before heading to London ahead of a state funeral on Monday next week. King Charles and the Queen consort Camilla will visit Parliament today where lawmakers will express their condolences. The King and Queen Consort will fly to Edinburgh this afternoon where they are set to inspect the Guard of Honour at Holyrood and meet with Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. They will also attend the Scottish Parliament to hear a motion of, confident, uh, of condolence. A service of prayer and reflection for the late Queen will be held at St Giles Cathedral. Uh, Jamana and Tanya join us with more on developments through the day. Let's start with Jamana in Edinburgh. Jamana, good morning. Good morning to you all. Well, yesterday was uh, quite a remarkable, uh, there was quite a remarkable moment at 10 a.m. Sunday morning where the public for the very first time was able to witness the Queen's coffin for the very last time departing her estate in Balmoral and uh, obviously setting course uh, on its journey to Edinburgh. A six-hour journey uh, passing through Scottish Highlands, through many towns, villages. It was an opportunity for mourners to come and pay their respects to the coffin for the very first time. And they were greeted with applauses, uh, some tears in some moments, and uh, also floral tributes, which has been a consistent theme over the last couple of days. Now, the coffin arrived at the Palace, Palace of Holyrood House at around 4 p.m. yesterday, where it has been ever since. Now, today, uh, there will be a procession at around 2.30 p.m. local time 
through the Royal Mile. So the coffin is going to be transported from the Palace of Holyrood House right up to St. Giles Cathedral. You can see right behind me here for a ceremony to take place at 3 p.m. And that will be attended by senior members of the royal family, including, as you mentioned, the king himself, who will be flying back up to Edinburgh this morning. Now, uh, afterwards, we are expected um, to... Uh, at, at, well, it is expected that a vigil will take place attended by all four of the late queen's children, including the king, but uh, the princess royal as well, Princess Anne, who also accompanied the coffin all the way from the Balmoral estate to the palace of Holyrood House. Prince Edward, Prince Andrew will also be attending the vigil. And then the coffin itself will lie in a state of rest for a period of 24 hours. This is a period whereby members of the public can actually come in and pay their respects again for the first time. Now, once this 24-hour period is over, it is only then that the coffin will get transported to the airport and it will be flown back to London to continue with all the proceedings in London. And I've got to say, just taking a step back here and talking about all of the arrangements and the events that have happened over the course of the weekend, and clearly a lot of these arrangements had been set in motion and uh, had been detailed over the course of decades. Now, in one sense, you get a feeling that that this is a country in mourning. We're in a national state of mourning until the day after the state funeral. Uh, this is a royal family in mourning, perhaps best described by the Prince of Wales, Prince William, over the weekend when he said, grief is the price we pay for love. But on the other hand, you also get this sense of continuity that uh, the wheels are in motion for the monarchy. The king was very quick to give his first address to the nation 24 hours after his mother's passing. Several proclamations over the weekend. He's now embarked on a tour of the United Kingdom visiting all other uh, constituents. So starting off in Scotland today, Northern Ireland tomorrow and then Wales on Wednesday. And this all goes to show that you know, while uh, the Her Majesty the Queen has passed on, uh, the monarchy as it stands is still very much alive. Okay, Jumana, thank you very much indeed for your coverage up in Scotland. Uh, King Charles was formally declared sovereign on Saturday in a ceremony broadcast live on television for the first time. Tanya um, joins us in a moment, but the Queen's coffin is expected to arrive at Buckingham Palace on Tuesday. As I say, Tanya uh, joins us now um, from the palace with more um, what uh, we're expecting for the week ahead. But before we look about the week ahead, Tanya, I thought it was the most extraordinary weekend. Uh, I saw events, of course, as you would have done in Windsor, where we saw... Uh, a real rapprochement between the two princes, William and Harry and their families, but also, more importantly, the accession uh, ceremony. I thought it was quite extraordinary uh, that we were able to witness this for the first time in history. That's right, Steve. It was unprecedented. For the first time in history, it was televised, the accession ceremony for King Charles III in front of the Privy Council. We were actually all able to see what happened, the ceremony, his address, and of course the Privy Council and how it worked. And what you talked about, of course, the Prince of Wales, the Princess of Wales, coming together with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. That was a big surprise. They came down the long walk at Windsor. No one expected it. And it, apparently, sources reveal it was at the 11th hour, Steve, that King Charles had got on to the Prince of Wales, William, to say, reach out to your brother 
and please show a form of unity. And of course, it was received very, very well by the public. And over the weekend, we've seen unprecedented scenes here at Buckingham Palace, thousands of people coming to pay their respects. And of course, they are mourning Queen Elizabeth II, but they are also showing their support for King Charles III, who this morning will start his day in London, going to Westminster Hall, where the House of Commons and the House of Lords will meet together to express their condolences to King Charles III and he will then address them, after which he will be flying at approximately 14.25 to Scotland, to Edinburgh, with the Queen Consort, where he will start the procession behind his mother. Tanya, thank you very much indeed for that. And we will go back to Jemana and Tanya for their respective uh, reporting uh, throughout the course of the morning here. Uh, switching gears and focusing back on the financial markets, the Fed Governor Christopher Waller has indicated his support for a third consecutive 75 basis point rate hike at this month's meeting, saying he backs another significant rise in rates. His comments come after similar remarks from Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Vice Chair Lael Brainard. The Bureau of Labor Statistics will publish the August inflation report on Tuesday after July's CPI reading came in at 8.5%, Steve. Yeah, and I think that's exactly the point. There is no pivot on the cards, according to policymakers across the board. They seem to be speaking with one voice, which is very interesting, uh, given how the markets are looking for any hint that actually, A, that policy is going to change, and B, as Jeff mentioned, that inflation uh, is uh, waning somewhat. So that print on Tuesday, followed by the PPI uh, on Wednesday, are the key pieces of data in the United States. We are expecting some form of abating of the highest levels of inflation we've seen this summer. Uh, but again, that can't be counted. That, in lieu of that, though, very interestingly, for the first week uh, in many the U.S. indices, in fact, risk generally uh, was back on again. So we saw a big rally on the U.S. markets. These moves you can see on the screen here are Friday's moves. But actually for the week to date, the Dow was up 2.7%. The S&P put on nearly 4%. And the Nasdaq did put on 4%, up 4.1% for the week. So a lot of movement to the upside, all sectors in positive territory. Friday, communication services. Again, growth stocks uh, moving up 2.5%, the best gainers. But for the week, it was consumer discretionary, uh, of which the largest constituent, as you all know by now, is Amazon, which rose the most, up 5.6%. Let's take a look at the Treasuries. We still remain fairly elevated uh, on the 10-year yield, but nowhere near as much, of course, as the 30 and indeed the short end of the curve. The two-year trading around 3.57%, the 10-year at 3.34%. Moving on to the oil price, again, absolutely fascinating action throughout the week. I thought it was an extraordinary week for oil, actually, where we saw big, big declines down to an 87 handle uh, on the global benchmark. November delivery, by the way, this is November expiry. Um, down to an 87 handle at its lows at the tail end of last week, somewhere around about here, midday Friday, and then a steady rally off those levels to around about $93 a barrel. And now concerns about the Asian demand once again has taken it off $93 a barrel down to $91.50, down 1.4%. But I have to say, I've looked at it all morning, the last three hours or so, and there is literally no volatility in the oil price this morning in session. I find that quite extraordinary. It got to 91 dollars so far today, and that's where it stayed. 
Let's move on to the Asian indices. Um, we've got a limited amount of uh, trading to show you here, um, but we have got the Nikkei, which again is following on with that risk on rally, up 1%, as indeed is the ASX 200. So I think these markets are in a, a fascinating position. And what the US indices told me last week, and by the way, I should hasten to add, the European markets did not put on anywhere near those kind of gains that we saw. Mm. Uh, the DAX was only up 0.3 of a percent as opposed to the major US indices up between 3 and 4 percent. It's, it's a coming to terms with the reality. And I guess this was always going to happen. Whatever you think the ultimate direction of travel is for risk on assets, for equities, I think the US markets were coming to terms with that. There is no pivot, certainly not now. That is what is being flagged, no pivot at all. But they are hoping, of course, that inflation is abating somewhat. So a pivot may be available at some stage, certainly not in early 2023, possibly at a later stage. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because uh, there was a, a bit of commentary um, running into the weekend suggesting that some of the risk on attitude could be about perceived military gains in Ukraine rather than anything else to do with the financial uh, architecture of, uh, of the world. And I, I thought that was extraordinary it's to stretch, argue that because Ukraine is making gains against Russia at this point, that is a negative for commodities, but it is a positive for risk on here. I don't know how you get to that. Uh, and with Nor all due I. respect to those people hypothesizing that scenario, yeah. and I'd love to hear their argument because maybe there's something really logical that I'm missing. But that would mean what? That they think because of Ukrainian gains that that means that there is going to be less tension with the West and Russia, hence that we could see Russian oil coming back to the table. I just don't understand that scenario. I think actually risks are heightened by the Ukrainian advances. I mean, they work if, if confirmed two to three thousand square kilometers of land taken in the Kharkiv region is one of the most lightning advances in military history. We, we all know that. You, you and I have studied many of these things. Uh, uh, but the truth of the matter is that makes the Putin regime, Kremlin, more dangerous in many people are saying in the short term. And if there were to be some form of regime change in Russia, which again, one can't discount at this stage. Mm. The fact of the matter is the thoughts and hopes of getting some cuddly, West-loving liberal government in are, are forlorn for the very short term. We know that it's as likely to be an ultra-nationalist government which takes over from Mr. Putin as it is to be, in fact, more likely than it to be some liberal. I, you and I were poring over this, I know, because we were communicating all weekend. We've seen the concerns about what was going on in Moscow at one stage with a bit of a lockdown going on there, and then all the speculation went rife on that as well. But I think to hypothesise that there is a, a more generous supply environment on the oil front from the actions in Ukraine. I think that is an extraordinary stretch. Yeah, I mean, there is a path, and you can see how the path is being mapped it's up not an immediate path. by the optimists. And what they're saying is, look, um, initially the talk around uh, nego a negotiated peace was Dmitry Peskov saying that it will come with conditions and we expect these gains to be solidified. There was, I, I believe, um, a, a brief doorstep of uh, Lavrov, the foreign minister, over the weekend, where he apparently talked about the hasty need for fresh negotiations to some form of peaceful end, but he didn't specify the same conditions that had been expressed by Dmitry Peskov. And I think, I uh, looked, um, some of that 
was, I think, seized upon to justify some of the moves that we saw on the Friday. The other thing I would say so here... Just to f- finish on that, do you think the terms from the Ukrainian point of view would be the same as they were when they were having real struggles in the war compared to when they've made a lightning advance? I, I don't think so somehow. No, absolutely not. I mean, if the Russians come to the table saying we go back to the February 12th lines... I think the Ukrainians say, forget it, we are going back to 2014 and we are taking back what we think is our due. But the other thing that I think was interesting, I was, I was reading a, a, a good piece of analysis on how the professional investment community, the institutional investors and the hedge funds are loading up on puts because they think that this market is walking on thin air at the moment. Okay. And the argument being that Everybody is trying to get them where they can get them because they are just anticipating a collapse which the retail market is not buying into. Okay, so, so there's this idea that there's a bifurcation now in the market view between the intelligent institutional investment community and the dumb retail the dumb retail is still buying because they still see some strength in the US data. Quite frankly, they want to believe that this... Um, uh, this bull, if you like, or uh, weak bear continues to lurch onwards and that there are rebound days that you can trade. Whereas the professionals are saying, you don't understand what is coming. There is a massive write down of earnings expectations set to take place here based on all of the pressures that um, consumers are having to face, like the high inflation and the the nipping away of business margins, the high energy prices and so on and so forth. So it's a very interesting push-me-pull-me kind of two-way story going on. I might make that a little bit more 3D if I may, just drawing on some ancient experience of mine, (laughs) and that is that um, a long put position added to a long underlying stock, which none of the institutions are bailing on their stock position, does create a synthetic long call. Yeah. Uh, sorry if I'm getting a bit geeky on the Greeks here, but a synthetic it's long good. call, which then basically means you are exposed to the upside, but you've taken a small premium hit in order to um, limit your downside risk. So yeah. long put plus long underlying position still equals ball position, mm. but obviously it depends how many puts you bought because, and again, I don't want to get into mm. too much option strategy, but it could create some form of straddle position where you make money on both sides. But if mm. you've only bought a certain proportion of puts, that would indicate... Uh, that you are still bullish on the market, but you've just taken out your downside protection to limit your losses. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's, that's the other point in the piece that I was reading that was saying that, you know, even as there is this desire to load up on protection, finally, there hasn't been the kind of institutional selling that you might have seen. Otherwise, we'd be a lot lower on indices than we are currently. So maybe there's, a, as you say, a hedging of bets going on here. While we stay in the market, we just think it's important to increase our protection and we don't mind paying for it at the moment. Extraordinary. Finally, the, the pros- I mean, as I've said many, many times, and I don't mm. want to belabor this too much, you wouldn't buy yeah. a house without insurance. No. You wouldn't buy a car <coughs> or any other major asset without insurance. And yet, glibly, the institutions with our money continue to buy naked, long stock positions and very rarely take out that downside insurance. Uh, We've got to go. Um, we're going to talk some more about Ukraine. Uh, stay with us. Russia retaliates as Ukraine reclaims thousands of square kilometres of territory in a sweeping weekend counteroffensive. We'll tell you more about it when we come back.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has hailed his army's counteroffensive into the Russian-held northeastern territories as a potential breakthrough in the six-month-old war. Ukraine said it reclaimed 3,000 square kilometers of territory, including one key Russian logistics hub in the city of Izium, and had forced thousands of invading troops to retreat. But Ukraine has also reported early retaliatory attacks, accusing Russia of targeting water and power facilities in the Kharkiv region. NBC's uh, Megan Fitzgerald filed this report from Kiev. In a lightning-fast advancement, Ukraine is quickly seizing ground. The counteroffensive gaining momentum and showing no signs of slowing. So we have to win. And this counteroffensive shows that we can win. On the 200th day of war, Ukraine announced its troops reclaimed more than 1,100 square miles from the Russians, liberating more settlements in the east, crippling Russia's grip in the Kharkiv region and forcing the Russians to retreat. Burned out tanks and fresh artillery left behind. Would you describe what we're seeing with Ukraine as a turning point in this war? Absolutely a turning point and the sign of the demise of Russia in Ukraine. And there's a deepening crisis at Europe's largest nuclear plant, the sixth and last working reactor shut down by Ukrainian energy officials after crews at the plant managed to restore an external line, the plant's only source of power. Are you concerned about a nuclear disaster? Yes. All of this is too close for comfort uh, for any of the nuclear security people working in the field. Um, we, it is literally playing with fire. A precarious situation made even worse because the shelling seen for weeks keeps coming. Experts say if the power line is struck again by artillery, the plant will be forced to run on backup generators that run on diesel. But there's only a 10-day supply of fuel. NBC's uh, Megan Fitzgerald with that report from Kyiv. Uh, Ukraine has accused Russia of targeting water and power supplies in retaliation for its own offensive as power blackouts hit around 9 million people in the east of the country. Prime Minister Zelensky says Russia is not targeting military facilities but is trying to deprive people of light and heat. Meanwhile, a backup power line to Europe's largest nuclear power plant has been restored. Russia and Ukraine accuse each other of shelling around the plant, risking a nuclear catastrophe. The Russian President Putin and his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron traded blame over security at the plant in talks this weekend. Russia called for a non-politicized interaction with the IAEA, while Macron urged Moscow to withdraw troops. Um, there is an update from UK military intelligence as well, as indeed there is most days as well. Um, let me just tell you what they are saying about the situation in Ukraine from their point of view. And again, there's a Western take on this. It's um, 
says the following. Uh, Russia has likely ordered the withdrawal of its troops from the entirety of occupied Kharkiv Oblast west of the Oskil River. Uh, in the south, near Kherson, Russia is likely struggling to bring sufficient reserves forward across the Dnipro River to the front line. Ukrainian long-range artillery is now probably hitting crossings of Dnipro frequently that Russia cannot carry out repairs to damaged road bridges. I think most of you will probably know most of what we've just heard from the UK briefing, given the extraordinary focus there has been all weekend on that activity. Uh, and one thing that, I mean, look, this is perhaps disingenuous to say so, but um, you and I are both students of politics. We both uh, have looked at politics and political history and as part of that political military history uh, over the centuries. And uh, both, I think it's fair to say, Lenderviews, and we're both fascinated by vast amounts of this as well. So whether it's the conquest of Gaul from Julius Caesar, which sits on my bookshelf, or Sun Tzu from you, The Art of War, uh, it, we do have a, 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 an understanding of kind of some of the basic concepts. And one thing I will say is geography isn't geography just the most extraordinary um, barrier and rationale for some of the greatest military campaigns, defeats and successes in history as well? And no matter if we're looking at the Gallic Wars of 50 BC or the 21st century war between Russia and Ukraine, mm. geography is still just the most important factor. And in two things I'll say this. One, we're talking about the Dnipro River. You cannot get supplies across there at the moment if you're Russian because of the artillery bombardment you're seeing from Ukraine. Um, the Izium and, and these towns in Kharkiv in the northeast as well, they are transportation hubs because of geography as well and how important that is as well. So for thousands of years, the, it's a truism that you need to control certain key areas and whether you're fighting a, a high-tech 21st century war or a low-tech pre-turn of the first millennium war, the fact of the matter is, it's still the same factors uh, in many ways. And it's just extraordinary what's going on here as well and, and the speed of events mm. on the ground. Yeah, I think the, the tactical approach ha has been very strong. I mean, you can see that over the last month, using the HIMARS system, the Ukrainians have consistently and comprehensively taken out all of the bridges along the Dnipro River that would have been important for the Russians to resupply their forces. And not only that, where the Russians have then introduced ferries to try to get supplies across the river, the Ukrainians have attacked the ferries as well. And there are pictures um, floating around on the internet showing you sunken ferries at those crossings. So they've, they've done a, um, a very good job of trying to slow the ability of the Russians to resupply. But I just want to move this on a little bit to the energy story here because yeah. we still don't have a pan-EU energy cap agreement. This is something I think that was much talked about over the last few weeks here and was perceived to be significant for putting all EU countries on the same page in terms of supply. And as we've been talking about this over recent weeks, we, we've just continued to see the headline oil price come down from the, the um, uh, it's come down 30% from the highs we've seen this year here. And the trend has been for the price to ease, notwithstanding the sort of rebound that we saw on Friday. And given that this is your wheelhouse in well, many senses, yeah. I, I'm just interested to get your 
read on how the markets now are trying to add two and two and come up with four. So there is this maths going on that there is a belief that if the Ukrainians continue to make gains um, in their fight against Russia, this will somehow lead to the reconnection of pipelines or more gas flowing through or more oil supplies easing up on international markets. I'm not sure I really understand the maths, but clearly something has happened with the price. Because I think you're looking in the wrong place. <clears throat> and I'll just, or because those people are looking yeah. in the wrong place. Yeah. I'll just show you, first of all, the year-to-date move on the oil price, just to frame this conversation as well. Thank you, team. Um, you'll see February, and you'll see that the late February moves, circa $100 a barrel, I think it's fair to say, we are now significantly lower on Brent than we were before this war started, before the West decided to limit the amount of Russian oil coming West, before the Russians decided to limit the amount of oil going West as well. So that means that that has absorbed, the market has absorbed all of that, which is absolutely quite staggering, given that, and as I mentioned last week, there are houses out there such as JP Morgan, uh, and you can almost pick a number. Jamie Dimon's talked about $175. Uh, some of their big oil experts have talked about, in a worst case scenario, $380. So there are a lot of balls out there. There are some of the hedge funds out there who are bemoaning now the market structure, which I find incredulous, seeing as when the market structure is moving very aggressively in their favor, you never hear them moaning about whether the market is dysfunctional or not. The fact of the matter is, it's not working out how many of the long hedge funds thought it would do and are now bemoaning mm. uh, the state and the functionality of the market, which is just ludicrous. But the point being here is, where, going back to the original point, is the next read, funnily mm. enough, uh, well, I think it's the throat to break actually, but it's about mm. China. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is the point. I think, well, we're all looking over what's going on here in the West mm. and about the marginal demand picture and the marginal supply picture as well. I've always believed that it's about the supply picture to Asia. Yeah. Because China, whatever you want to say about China, good and bad, it's been about the China growth story, why we've seen exponential growth in demand mm. over the last 20 years. And if China is going to slow to a crawl in terms of growth, if you're going to have a two-handle on the growth picture, possibly even worse, mm. that is where the great fear is. And I'll, I'll make the same point I've made a couple of weeks ago. When His Royal Highness Abdulaziz bin Salman starts worrying about making production cuts, then you know this isn't just about Russia and the West. This is about the Asian marginal buyer of those barrels as well. And, and because Russia is being shut out, again, it's a patchy picture, because Russia is being shut out of Western markets, they are turning east. They want to sell more barrels at a discounted level to India, to China, and to any other buyer they can find in the east as well. The Middle Eastern producers, Qatar, the UAE, Kuwait and especially, of course, Saudi Arabia, the, the behemoth of, of suppliers mm. in that region of the GCC, mm. has put great pride in their ability to sell barrels to China. If Russia is now competing for those barrels, that is going to be very interesting as well. I'll make one more point as well. Uh, His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia and others, can't, can't handle a, a two-digit oil price. They need a higher oil price for their extraordinary budgetary aims over the next 10 20 years as well. They need triple-digit oil prices to balance the books. If you're going to see $91 a barrel, that is incredibly worrying for the budgetary constraints on many of these players. And I'll add one more factor in as well, if I may, just very briefly. I'll just say one word, Iran. And that's what a lot of people are watching the JCPOA deal, whether it happens or not, because the Iranians are desperate to get a lot of barrels on the table. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.